This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Welcome. It's yours. It just depends on how much it means to you. This is a chance of a lifetime. You can't be afraid to go out and compete and do whatever it takes. To the coaches. Cannot play with them. Cannot win with them. Cannot coach with them. Can't do it. Clubhouse. I don't think we have an avenue to say anything anytime. So you're talking to the wrong guy there. I think we're like the mushrooms. Just keep them in the dark and throw the crap on them and hope it grows. Now here's your coach's clubhouse host, Nicole Auerbach. Hey everyone, this is Nicole Auerbach and welcome again inside the Coaches Clubhouse, the podcast where we delve deep into what drives coaches on and off the sidelines. This week, we're talking to longtime DC United head coach, Ben Olson. Few coaches in any sport have the type of connection that Olson shares with DC United. After a decorated college soccer career playing for the University of Virginia, he was drafted by DC United in 1998 and spent a decade playing for the club. Afterwards, he quickly transitioned into coaching, starting as an assistant in 2010 before unexpectedly being handed the head job during his first season, a position he still holds. In our conversation, Olson talks about how unprepared he was for that responsibility at the time and how it's shaped his career so far. He also discusses his passion for art, especially painting. We spoke in May, and he gets into how he was using his extra time during the shutdown to paint more than ever. Here's my interview with Ben Olson. I love asking this question to people at all stages of their career in sport is, when did you fall in love with soccer? Well, I, I fell in love with sports at a, a very early age, and I didn't know it at the time. It was just a great outlet for me. I was a, a, a kid that... Uh, needed to run and exercise. And I also had pretty good coordination at an early age. So I had some success with it. It just made sense in a lot of uh, different ways for me as a kid growing up. So, you know, unlike a lot of kids now that start to specialize in some sport early, I, I swam, I did basketball, I did tennis, played soccer, you know, flag football. I, I did everything. And I was in a great little small town in Pennsylvania where you just, that's what you did. You got out of the house and you played any sport. I played baseball and uh, I, I really I gravitated towards anything physical uh, as a young kid. I'm with you on the specialization thing. I played three main sports growing up. Outside of the benefits for your health, it just like mentally was nice to have those different sports. I, I completely agree. Uh, again, I... I I hesitate to be like, oh, this is the way back in the 80s that, you know, I played four different sports and that's the way because now it's just different because these kids are putting so many hours that keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with the kids in their field or their sport, you almost have to specialize in some way. But I'm really thankful that I was exposed to basketball and high school sports and playing not on elite teams and, and having different types of teammates. Yeah, I feel very, very fortunate. And I also think it gives you a different look at different mindsets, right? Uh, playing tennis competitively growing up, uh, I had to deal with myself only. I, I couldn't look at teammates in tennis. It's uh, like maybe wrestling or some of these other individual sports. There's so many resets, right? Every point, there's a reset. There's a disappointment or there's a positive event. Every game, you either lose or win. Every set, you either win or lose. So there's so many times that you have to recalibrate and not dwell on a negative event or 
not get too high in a positive event. So I think tennis really gave me a little bit of mental fortitude that maybe I wouldn't have gotten with basketball or tennis or basketball or soccer or baseball. Tennis was one of my sports. So I'm just like nodding along. (laughs) Yeah, it's the best. I, I play, listen, tennis, don't tell anybody this. Tennis is my favorite sport. Then basketball, then soccer. Do you watch tennis too? You know, I, I go through phases where I'm really into watching the slams. I go local here. We have a couple really good tournaments locally that, that I'll sneak out to. But yeah, I mean, you know, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. I mean, we live in such a, a great time for tennis to watch these three greats do their thing. And I grew up with McEnroe and Connors and my father played Borg and these guys, Becker, these these guys were all young idols of mine, even more so than any soccer player because there was no exposure growing up for me in the soccer world. I couldn't watch soccer on television. I did it because I was good at it, but my sports idols were Michael Jordan and the Bulls and the tennis greats. Those were the guys I, I looked up to. McEnroe was probably the guy I maybe identified for better or worse with as a kid. As you're talking about, you're good at soccer. You play in other things, but you're good at that. It's possibly going to open up some doors and some college opportunities maybe beyond that. When does that realization sink in? And like, how does that change how you approach that sport? Does the training change? Do you start doing other things? In one year, soccer became a different animal in my world, probably maybe 13, 14 years old. And I played on a select team. And that select team, back in the day, it was an Olympic development program. And I won't get too geeky with you on on that. It was different. But essentially, it was all about trying to be the best of the state. And you played on a state team. And then all the states would play each other in this big tournament. And they would then identify the best of all those states and make a regional team, the East Coast, the best of the East Coast. Uh, and then if you made the best of the East Coast, you would play the four regions of the United States, a West Coast team, a, a Northern team, and a Southern team. And that would go to a big identification weekend. And then out of that, they'd pick the best for the national team. So it was, it was really simple. And within one year, I went from just playing club soccer locally to being on a select team, state team, regional team, and then being identified in the national team pool. So it went pretty quickly. And what happened, that's the national team. And then I went back for traveling to Philadelphia from a small town in Pennsylvania, about two hours away, several times a week to play with better competition. And my mother and father were, I can't believe they did it looking back on it, but it was, you're talking two and a half hours on a school night, coming back at 11, 1130. It's a serious commitment for parents back then. You know, now it's it's a little bit more normal to do that. But back then it was, uh, it was again, I didn't know it at the time, but it, it, looking back, it was a, a huge commitment from my parents, but it didn't seem like work. It, it wasn't a big deal. It was just what you did to get to play with better competition. As a player, you've got to experience, you know, a World Cup and all of these different levels of soccer. These are things that people dream of. And then, you know, an injury comes. What is that like to go through physically, but also mentally? I imagine that that is a very challenging thing. Yeah, the, the physical side, you know, we're, we're kind of used to pain and surgeries and rehab. It was more the mental uh, you know, the, the the mental side of it was a little bit tougher for me. It was twofold. It was that we didn't know for most of my injuries, we just didn't know if I was going to be cured, right? So it was a surgery and then another one and what's wrong and all these doctors have different ideas on how to fix you. And so that could be, that was a little bit frustrating. The other part was you don't feel very productive. 
right? You know, here they were paying me money and that's great. And I, but I needed to feel like I was doing something and we could talk about this later, but that's when I started picking up the paints and, and starting to think about filling that void with something creative. So that was a, a nice outlet for me during all those times. I probably spent two and a half years not playing soccer throughout my career through injuries. If you add up the little things, it was you know into three years. So I had to find things to do other than just rehab. At that point, is there like a why me? No, I wasn't that guy. I never really thought that I wouldn't play again. Of course, it would pop into my brain that, you know, I, I started thinking about the next phase of my life and, and what would I do, but it never, I never thought about it too much. I was always pretty set on coming back and playing soccer. I knew it would just take a little bit of time. It was frustrating, but it wasn't the end of the world. The physically now, you know, I, I probably have ten, I had 10 surgeries on the ankles and uh, one or two on the knees. And I feel it. I feel it now for sure. You know, every day I wake up and there's, there's some severe arthritis in there and I don't regret it. I don't regret going through all those surgeries, but I certainly am not 100% physically from all the, those guys cutting, cutting my legs up. I have been told that you have been known to pop in on a pickup game around DC. Can you confirm that? Yeah, I can confirm that. You know, I spent my whole life playing this game and trying to perfect it. And I love the game. I really, really do. I love playing the sport. And uh, every now and then I'll, I'll jump in a pickup game. I don't play with the team anymore. For the first couple of years as a coach, I jumped in a lot, almost in a therapy way because I, I just needed it. I wasn't done playing. But then I got a little older and I couldn't catch up with the guys and they just got, I got older and they got better. So every now and then I'll jump in a pickup game around the city. But then I, for two days, I just limp around and it's not pretty. So much has changed with the sport in this country, even from your own playing days to where MLS is now, just general fandom and the exposure that kids have, I think, to European soccer. And how drastic has that shift been? Extremely drastic. The opportunities these kids have growing up and playing this sport, whether it's watching 10 different leagues on television, right? The, the access to fields and coaching is better. Take it to playing FIFA, right, as a, as a pastime, you know. Yeah, it's a pastime. It's a video game, but it's not Tetris, right? I was playing Tetris and Metroid, and these guys are now still playing FIFA where it's a fun game and it's competitive, but there's still tactics in it. And they're able to manipulate the formations and make substitutions and see stats. It's, it's a good time to be a, a young kid who loves the game of soccer. And you, you have the internet to go on and listen to high-level coaches, whether it's the physical side, tactical, the mental side, the, the exposures, you can't even compare from me growing up. And that, that's why I go back to saying I was fortunate to play other sports. And I was able to maybe figure out, problem solve with the game of soccer, uh, maybe a little bit better than some kids now that are just pigeonholed. And we're constantly trying to pull kids back. Some kids are so soccer specific that they rely on that and forget about problem solving in the moment. And so teaching that is a, is, is a tricky thing. So I know you've said that you didn't 
plan on coaching, wondering why people put themselves through that. What changed? And and obviously it was so quick after your playing career that, that you did dive into this. Like, did you have another plan like of what you wanted to do after your playing career? And then that happened or how did it come about? My plan was certainly not the coach. I thought these guys were nuts The you know, I'd watch them and then the stress after a loss and, you know, you could see it, right? If you're a player, as you get a little older, you get a little bit more, I think, empathetic to your coaches and you understand a little bit more what they're going through. And I was like, this is nuts, no chance. But, you know, it, it happened quickly that I needed to step away from the game. I was masking a lot of my pain through drugs that, that last year, uh, and I was getting through the season. And I decided when the season ended, I was going to get off a lot of that and see, you know, just to cleanse my body. And the pain crept in. And I, I, I just had a child, so it was, it was tough to go up and down the stairs. And I just, it was time. And the club also pushed me in that direction because it wasn't fair to them. I was only training maybe two days a week uh, and I wasn't necessarily always reliable on game day. So they offered me a job as an assistant coach with the head coach then it was Kurt Anolfo and Kurt was gracious enough to let me on his staff. It wasn't my plan to now, okay, do this for five years and learn and then become a head coach. This was a job. I was like, hey, I got nothing else right now. Uh, I, it was a it was a nice look at a potential career, and again, very thankful that I had the opportunity. But I didn't know that six months later that they would ask me to be the interim head coach, and it was a it was a big shock to me. I was in no way ready for that job. I had no business being in that job. I had no infrastructure. I had no foundation. I didn't know who I was as a coach. I didn't know my philosophy. I had nothing. But I think I was authentic, but I don't recommend the path that I took to a head coaching job because for two, three years, I was in over my head and, and I had to learn on the fly and I took a, a lot of hard lessons. So how do you figure out your philosophies and how you want things to be done on the fly? Time, time, making mistakes, talking to others, doing a lot of self-evaluation of who I am, what makes me good as a leader who I need to surround myself with. And it took me a few years to kind of find, uh, find that out. And, you know, look, this is always a, a process of self-discovery. I'm, I'm still figuring it out and changing and adapting, whether it's myself or how to communicate or deal with a new generation that comes. You know, we just signed this 16, 17-year-old. Right. I'm getting up there now. And there's a big distance between a 17 year old kid and my age now and, and where I grew up. So what, what I surround myself with, how do I go into their world now and, and get the best out of them? So it, it's constantly adapting and, and trying to get better. It's dynamic. It's fluid. And, and I think that's one of the great parts about the job. If you could go back to yourself six months in when you get that job, like what would be the piece of advice that you would give that coach? Run, quit, <laughs> go. <laughs> no, um, I would have done a lot more self-evaluation of who I was as a person. I would have taken a lot more management classes. I would have taken a lot more surveys and, and self-evaluation of who I was. And I would have then taken that and handpicked people around me that were very specific in what they brought to the table to cover up some of my deficiencies, right? And also mentor me as I go through this. And I had a great coach. I had one person that really helped me is Chad Ashton, who's been by my side for over a decade. 
with the club. And, and you know, he's done a great job of, of, of filling that. But you always need more. You always need more people around you. It's not always one person. So adding one or two more of that would have helped early. What is it like to be so identified with one organization and one place? Like, I I imagine that that must be one of the cooler parts of your career, which is so unique. Like, I thought it was hilarious that you got to have a Ben Olsen's Chili Bowl. That's amazing. That seems like a dream come true. (laughs) That was the highlight of my my whole career. to be associated with that great place. That's something that doesn't happen if you don't spend that much time in one place. It's so rare in this new sports landscapes to stay at one place this long. You count on maybe two hands, coaches that you can think of that have been with a club for over, you know, 20 plus years. I feel very, very humble that I've been able to stick around what is, you know, I, I still believe is the best club in this league. But there's also a little bit of a burden with it uh, that is, I think, healthy and, and one that I, I take very serious of pleasing this fan base and trying to get them a championship. Not that other coaches that go in from Sweden to a job, same burden and same pressure. And But I still feel like because I've been here this long and this club means so much to me, maybe it's just a hair more of how much I'd like to reward these fans in the district with a championship. And, you know, maybe there's some other aspects of the club that are more romantic to me, whether it's the past or or how we're looked at. Maybe external things that go along with the club are so important to me. But again, this is the club I identify with and I always will. And so every little aspect of the club is important to me on whether it's how we act, you know, in a hotel. Uh, what our brand means, what the fans feel, how we're identifying with our past, but also looking towards building a, a, a new future that is respects the past, but also is about trying to push this team to a level that we need to go to to win that championship because the league is moving uh, very, very fast. So I don't know if that answered your question, but Yeah, it does. And I wonder too about living in the heart of the district, really being like within that city, even now. Well, we're we're ready to move to the burbs, but within DC, you know, there's burbs in in the district and, you know, I have no plans on moving out of the district. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a lovely place to be. It's one of the great cities in the world and it's home, right? It's, it's where my kids are uh, call home and they're in a, in a good schooling system. They go to charter public school here and we just feel, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a great place for our family to be living in the moment. And yeah, I feel very lucky to have been part of this club, but also lucky to be part of this city. You're also near your studio. So wanted to talk about painting. And you mentioned this earlier about when you got into it and why. So I was wondering if we could start there. Yeah, you know, I, I was exposed to the arts on my father's side. My grandfather was an artist. His wife, my grandmother, was a uh, interior decorator and art teacher. And my father was a writer and his sisters uh, were into textiles and also his other sister was an artist and inventor. And my, my, my grandfather was, has, I think, over 100 patents from invention. So it's a really creative side. And a lot of that has you know, passed down through probably genetics. We can debate that if it's genetics or environment. But it's always been in me. Growing up, uh, art classes were always a lot of fun to me and, and being creative 
was a part of my life. So it wasn't out of out of the blue. I said, I'm going to paint because I'm injured. And, you know, so I, I, you know, I always dabbled in the arts and it started and I, I really enjoyed it. It was a nice outlet, especially when I couldn't exercise. When, when you're an athlete and you can't exercise and you can't sweat, that's such a big part of your day and to release those endorphins. You got to find something else that makes you happy. And painting filled that void for me while I was injured. So did you like set it up at your house or where, how'd you start? Yeah. Yeah. I've ruined a lot of rugs and it's uh, you know because when you're in the moment you're you're you, it can get a little messy so yeah i did it in an apartment during that time and each house has had its own little space that i would sneak away to but uh, I, you know i never wanted to get a studio because i didn't do it enough i didn't warrant spending so much money on a studio because of just the job was so consuming so fast forward to becoming a coach Again, I needed that outlet again, and I slowly produced more works and got into painting more and more. I ended up getting a studio because we were running out of space. My wife was basically said, that's enough. Uh, I grabbed the place and it was great. You know, I didn't get there that often, but when I did, it was a, a really nice place to be. And it, just like any other hobby, you, you want to get better at it. And there's only one way to get better at stuff, and it's putting the hours in. And that part has been a little bit tough because I am competitive. I'm competitive with everything in my life, including painting. I want to get better, and the only way to do that is put hours in. And that's been that's been tough to come by because of I have three young children, and I have a very consuming job. But this period in my life, I've been able to paint more than ever in my life, and I'm spending quite a bit of time on DC United, of course, and, and making sure our culture is still up and running and our guys are in safe environments and they're physically where they need to be. And tactically, we're doing enough to not go backwards. So then we, we return, we're, we're in good shape. But there's also some time on my hands. That's just the reality of it. I can't watch film for and uh, be stuck at the office all day. So I'm taking advantage of it. And I'm going in there more than ever. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. And uh, I've produced more works than I've ever produced. So it's, it's still frustrating, though. At times, I'll leave the, the studio. And just like you had a bad game or a bad practice, it's, it's frustrating because you didn't get it right. But that's a... Uh, yeah. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. And uh, I'm sure I'll be back to work in a couple of weeks. And, you know, maybe I don't, you know, I, I don't get there, but 10 times a year. But that's life. What inspires you when you're painting? It's not about, to me, it's not inspiration. It, to me, it's the act of painting. It's physical for me. And I, I like the idea of painting on a canvas. My canvases are big. I don't do two feet by two feet. I do six by nine feet. And it's not very tight stuff. I'm not sitting there drawing a really tight landscape. That's not, that's not my game. I'm all over the place. I'm throwing paint around. Again, it's more of a physical act then I'm inspired today to go paint. And it's, it's something in you. An artist will tell you that that's in you somehow. And you have to get that out if something else isn't bringing that out. And as a player, that was always brought out. It's a creative sport. And I think most sports are creative and you get that outlet. But when you don't have that, it's, I think it's important to find a way to get that, that, that creative spirit out. Do you show people your art? Is it hanging up around the house? Is it like a private thing? It's, I wouldn't call it private. You know, I, I have a website and, and I, people are, are, are certainly 
open to look at it. I'm not ash- I'm not ashamed about it. I don't think fans necessarily want their head coach to paint. I don't think it's like, <laughs> oh man, he's what a great coach. He paints, right? Well, they, they want you to be thinking about soccer all 24/7. Time. They, they, yeah. they, you know, people want you to be obsessed, right? They, they want their uh, coaches obsessed with the sport. And the old cliche of sleeping on the couch in the film room. But that's old school thinking. Taking care of yourself is a big part of being a good coach. I, I truly believe that. You know, I think the, the more people study coaches and leaders, the more they put emphasis on making sure you're taking care of yourself in order to take care of others. And this is just one area where I prioritize to make sure I'm in a, in a good headspace to make sure I'm the best leader possible for this club. And believe me, if it didn't help that, I wouldn't do it because that's still priority number one for me. Priority number two after my family actually is to, again, do everything I can to help this club go where it needs to be. And that's winning championships. When you mentioned like six by nine feet canvases, um, I, I see what happened to your rugs now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that doesn't work in a row home, right? Uh, but the, the the studio now, I, I got a I got a bigger one, and and I can really just kind of branch out and and you know go as big as possible. And if paint goes everywhere, it's no big deal. It's fun to have a place where it doesn't matter if paint goes everywhere, goes on the floor, and you just don't give a shit. That was our interview with Ben Olson. Check out all of our episodes on the SiriusXM app. Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Nicole Auerbach, and I'll talk to you next time inside the Coach's Clubhouse.